welcome to another podcast. This is number 17, which is number two in a three-part series I'm calling Jazz and Movies, featuring jazz scores as background for movies, not specifically about the music itself. I explained that in number uh, number one. So uh, what you just heard there was Elmer Bernstein's foray into what I consider heavily pop music, pop jazz. I mean, it's it's geared to please. I think it, it probably made the top ten or whatever the heck I had back then. Something the public can kind of hum along with. and Wow, that's really cool. I get it. They get it. Uh, not much there. I, I never liked it much. <laughs> that's just me. I mean, another opinion was probably... Uh, at the far far end of the spectrum from uh, critical everything, but that's okay. I, th- I just think it's really obvious and kind of like overblown. Uh, the movie itself is really a, a good movie. It's, it stars Frank Sinatra, who plays a heroin addict, and that's the reference to the arm where he gets his shots and his fixes. And after watching The Manchurian Candidate from 1962, after watching The Manchurian Candidate from 62, I believe Frank Sinatra to be a great actor. The Man with the Golden Arm co-stars Kim Novak, Kim Novak was sort of panned as kind of a, just a, a pretty face, nice blonde hair, and she wasn't considered a great actress, but I think she's highly underrated. Eleanor Parker is in this also, and I think she played a kind of a fellow junkie. She's also excellent. Overall, it's just a really good movie. I'm going to cover uh, five more scores in this, and I've got to add, I guess, a That'll make five the first part one, five the second part one. And one thing I'm going to do after my friend uh, listening to part one is put in just a little bit of commentary about the piece and or the composer. So, with that in mind, these comments, I think all of them that I'll make about the uh, the pieces, come from a really, really neat website. It's called A Taste of Cinema. And this uh, section is called The 20 Best Jazz Soundtracks in Movie History. And this particular set of uh, commentary is by a guy named Louis, or Louis, Bevilacqua, who's a teacher and uh, looks to be uh, from Brazil. says, movie freak and frontman of Brazil's band Bola 8. He says of Elmer Bernstein, Bernstein was a visionary when he got together with the heads of, of uh, the West Coast Jazz, uh, the drummer Shelley Mann and the trumpet player and arranger Shorty Rogers, to make the soundtrack an obligatory item for a good jazz collection i got to put in, at least it was back then. All West Coast musicians were members of Stan Kenton's orchestra, interesting, who didn't participate in the soundtrack but had a lot of influence. Bernstein's fusion of Afro-Latin music and arrangements with a dissonant eye for traditional jazz and blues. Bernstein also wrote soundtracks for uh, The Ten Commandments, the one with uh, Charlton Heston, and he worked uh, with a a close protege of Aaron Copland, the famous classical composer Billy the Kid and uh, Rodeo. And the now equally famous, because it's played all the time, Appalachian Spring. And Bernstein was very good friends with this guy. In other words, he had a strong connection with uh, classical music. And a couple other movies Bernstein did were um, the one that everybody knows, The Magnificent Seven, and uh, Yul Brynner, and Thoroughly Modern Millie. Quite a a range of uh, styles there. And on to number two, which is actually number six in the whole series of uh, scores. This is a movie that... (laughs) <laughs> I'd, I'd bet I don't own much I, you know, I'm kind of a poor guy very creative sometimes but very poor I'd bet everything I own which is probably worth 50 bucks that you've never heard of this movie number one is Italian number two I've looked for it 
because I wanted to see the movie as well as hear the score. The score is available, but not the movie. I wanted to see the movie, and it's not available anywhere, not on the Internet. I So I'm going to call up Los Angeles stores. There's a list of ten of them to see if any of these guys have a copy of this thing. It's called Smog. And it's about a lawyer, an Italian lawyer, goes to Los Angeles and buzzes around doing whatever. So um, don't expect to see the movie, but the score itself is really cool. And the cut I'm going to play is, is really long, several minutes long. The trumpet player is uh, Chet Baker. And I'm going to play the whole thing because, God, it's just really good jazz. It's a beautiful arrangement and everything. So just bear with it. It's not movie music, as you just heard from The Man with the Golden Arm. Uh, this is it's a straight-ahead jazz and excellent. If you don't want to hear it, fast-forward through it. But I, I've heard it twice. It's just really good jazz. And comes in here at just under five minutes.
that's about as good horn playing as I've heard. And I was never a, a, a Chet Baker fan because I just hadn't listened to uh, that much of him. But hearing this, I'm thinking, gosh, what I have missed. I'm going to hear some more of him. Here's some stuff from that site, uh, a little commentary on the movie itself, and a, a few words about Chet Baker. Smog is an Italian film directed by Franco Rossi. It's not famous. It's even hard to find it to buy a copy of anywhere. However, despite this, it's a very original movie. And above all, it has a superb soundtrack. I'll interject here that uh, I did see it on YouTube, but it's an Italian with no subtitles. So, Composed and played by Piero Umilani and Chet Baker, the duo had previously worked together in E Soliti Ignoti from 1958, a comedy filmed by the master of Italian humor, Mario Monticelli. In Smog, their collaboration reached, reaches its peak in a moody and climactic jazz representing the beautiful musical production Chet Baker had in his Italy years. And while we're on straight ahead jazz used as background scores, might as well do Anatomy of a Murder. Duke Ellington wrote the score for that. And this one, as well as The Man with the Golden Arm, was also directed by Otto Preminger, who seemed to have a knack or a liking or a talent for picking up kind of really neat jazz stuff for background music. I'm going to read the commentary for this uh, first because uh, it's a little about Duke Ellington. The king of all, Sir Duke, that's how Stevie Wonder refers to Duke Ellington, one of the first jazz masters. The Duke was a piano virtuoso who influenced a generation of musicians like Thelonious Monk, Herbie Hancock, and McCoy Tyner. In this Otto Preminger murder mystery, Ellington's soundtrack captures the somehow light atmosphere unusual for a trial movie. James Stewart plays a lawyer trying to prove his client's innocence in a murder case. Funny, intricate, and groovy, Ellington's soundtrack matches perfectly the tone of the movie. Sir Duke Ellington can be seen playing the piano at a bar in a scene of the movie. Ben Gazzara is on trial, and he's on trial for murdering a local innkeeper whom his wife claims uh, raped her. And it's, it's very delicate the way they handle that. And uh, this is back in the, uh, you know, the 50s. So, rape, wow. And George C. Scott's in it. And uh, it's an all-around really good movie. It's, it's, it has a twist ending, too. So, highly recommended. And the score itself is just Duke Ellington across the board. So, expect something other than your standard Elmer Bernstein movie music
Okay, that wasn't what is listed as the main, the title music from uh, from the movie. I was going to put that in, but it's really abstract and, um, okay, difficult to listen to. So I took another piece. This is called Flirt Bird, and it refers to uh, Lee Remick, I'm sure, who is the wife who was supposedly raped that caused Ben Gazzara, the guy on trial, uh, to kill him. And uh, it's it's really nice to listen to. I, I've got to say, I listen to all the tracks in this because on Amazon uh, Digital Music, I do 10 bucks a month for it or 12 bucks a month or something. I can listen to all, all the tracks for free. And I listen to all of them and they all sound like somebody said, Hey Duke, here's what's going on in this scene. And uh, what do you think? Just, you know, here's an idea. Write something for it. And he did. He wrote a Duke Ellington piece. But it wasn't specifically... But it's not like a, a perfect hand-and-glove match for the scene. Um, like you find, uh, let's see, uh, Annie Morricone doing his, uh, you know, spaghetti western stuff. Really good music, but, you know, each... each the music matches perfectly what's going on on the screen. This is sort of like abstract blend, a blend of a feeling of what's going on on the screen. Okay, after I blithered through that explanation of what I think, I'm going to play something else from it. This is a sort of, it doesn't even sound like Duke Ellington to me. It's just really beautiful. It's uh, later on in the, uh, in the movie. The track is called Low Key Lightly. And uh, it's just actually the second half of the track. It's violin over some uh, really nice orchestration. And I don't know if Stefan Grappelli, the great jazz violinist, uh, did this or not. I, I need to look that up. I should have, but I'm too lazy. Thank you. 
after I added that track just now, I did some research, duh, <laughs> and found out that Stefan Grappelli, an amazing, amazing musician, uh, he worked with everybody, and he did work with Duke Ellington. So I'm pretty sure that what you're listening to or what you just listened to on that track was uh, Stefan Grappelli, great, great violinist. Um, I, I should have included him in, the, in one of the jazz shows. Maybe I still will do a, a 50s one, but anyway, I think it was Stefan Grappelli with Duke Ellington. We're going to switch gears now to um, a composer whom you probably haven't heard of, but you definitely heard. He's kind of a, a master of many styles. You've seen his name and heard his music in shows like, uh, if you like science fiction, he did a lot of science fiction stuff. In 1953, he did the score for War of the Worlds, the old one, not, not the Tom Cruise mess, the good one. Uh, he did a whole bunch of TV stuff, for, uh, he did episodes for Rawhide, uh, Have Gun Will Travel, Daniel Boone, Lost in Space, and a slew of others. And also in 1953, he wrote the score for what we're going to hear next. There doesn't seem to be a, like a main theme for the movie, so, but the two sections I'm including really stand out. It's uh, for the, the movie The Wild One with Marlon Brando, which was the granddaddy of all motorcycle movies. And the story was based on an incident and it happened in California. And from the Wikipedia, the story was inspired by sensationalistic media coverage of an American Motorcyclist Association rally that got out of hand on the 4th of July in 1947 in Hollister, California. Uh, the overcrowding, drinking, and street stunning were given national attention, including an, an, in an issue of Life magazine, and um, the events conflated the newspaper and magazine reports, and a man named Frank Rooney wrote a short story called The Cyclists. The movie's based on that. It's referred to as The Legend of the Hollister Riot. I find this kind of thing interesting. You know, I watch movies, watch movies all my life, and I wonder, once in a while I wonder, where did it come from? You know, where did Marlon Brando on a motorcycle come from? Out of nowhere? No, it's, it's, they're based on things like that. And uh, anyway, this is the first motorcycle gang movie. The music Lathe Stevens wrote for this is, some of it is just kind of like right out of the 50s, what people listen to on the jukebox. And some of it is kind of not background music so much as geared towards the feeling of what's going on like this. Two sections with a short break.
I said, most of the other music uh, from the soundtrack is filler. Uh, the kind of stuff you'd hear in a jukebox if you went to a restaurant and ate a hamburger and wanted to listen to contemporary music. And that's kind of interesting because at the same time as this, bebop was uh, thriving. But there's no bebop in this, as you could hear. Okay. And at this point, you can turn off the program because I'm going to describe two film terms that are relative to what we've been listening to over the past few podcasts. Oh, heck, stick around. You'll learn something. Okay, ready? The terms are diegetic and non-diegetic. And they sound like something you'd buy in a drugstore. (laughs) What's that, sir? You say you have diegesis? Well, here, take two of these non-diegesis pills and I'll see you in the hospital. But, uh... But they're, they're terms you could throw around in a music about film if you meet some hoity-toity person who thinks he knows everything. And I'm certainly not one of those people. Okay, here we go. The first one is it's called diegetic. D-I-E-G-E-T-I-C. And that's any sound that originates from within the film world. Examples would be character dialogue, objects that sounds make, and music emanating from within the film that helps the audience become absorbed in a scene. For example, music playing loudly in someone's headphones or pounding dance music at a bar are diegetic sounds. This kind of diegetic sound is also called diegetic music or source music. What is non-diegetic sound? Non-diegetic sound is any sound that does not originate from within the film's world. The film's characters are not able to hear non-diegetic sound. And they're added, of course, in post-production. After the movie's done, they, they stick it in. What we're talking about is a soundtrack, and make it very simple. All the sounds that you can hear that the characters can't hear is non-diegetic. And we're usually talking about the musical soundtrack, which is what this program is about. When diegetic and non-diegetic sound are combined, here we go, another term. It's called transdiegetic. <clears throat> Transdiegetic sounds refer to any sound that moves in between non-diegetic and diegetic, or vice versa. So, examples of transdiegetic sound. How about uh, a character hums a tune, a diegetic sound that's coming, that actually the character's here in the story because he's humming it. And that humming sound turns into an orchestral version of the same tune, non-diegetic, which carries over into the next scene. Or... Music plays over the opening credits of a film, non-diegetic sound, but once the title sequence ends, that same music becomes a song heard on someone's radio in the opening scene, which is diegetic. This example links the credit sequence with the opening scene to ease the audience into the movie-going experience. So now you know. That wasn't hard, was it? I thought it was interesting, but I also find interesting the mating habits of the North African black beetle, you know, so... I didn't know there were names for those things, but there certainly are, as I just pointed out. And I'm sure that uh, people who use film and do a lot of post-production stuff are very familiar with them. And now you are, too, if you're still awake. Well, after that rousing climax to an otherwise decent show, (laughs) uh, do the ending bit. Uh, If you have any comments or foul deprecations, send them to gcarter1mwc at gmail.com. Uh, I'm done with the instruction part of this uh, series, so uh, next time we'll hear nothing but uh, some commentary and some good music from Last Tango in Paris and Breathless and some Miles Davis, too, believe it or not. He did uh, a soundtrack for a French movie called Elevator to the Gallows. So, 
hopefully I haven't turned everybody off completely, and I, I hopefully will see you then. Thanks. Bye-bye.